My name is Tom Abbott from the University of Warwick. The decision by George Bush to send an additional 20,000 troops to Iraq has been the subject of intense debate regarding America's strategy for the conflict. Rob Johnson is a historian who has studied conflicts across the Middle East. Rob, what difference will 20,000 additional troops make on the ground? Well, uh, that's quite an interesting point because although 20,000 sounds like a lot and, and clearly that's meant for a domestic audience in America to sound as if you know we're going to send the troops in and we're going to f- finish the job, actually when it translates on the ground, uh, that's not very many men at all. Um, if you take into account all the logistics, supports, the drivers, um, air transport and so on that's needed, you're talking something like uh, maybe 8,000, possibly 10,000 at most men on the ground. Now, uh, when you turn, in, you know, in terms of uh, geographical spread, then of those troops as well, uh, really that might mean that uh, in Baghdad we'll see no more than uh, than uh, two or three thousand, uh, and then the provinces, perhaps another security du- duties and protecting lines of communication, another four or five thousand. Um, so, although this word surge has been used by the Bush administration quite a lot, uh, in actual terms. Uh, it'll make very little uh, difference, you know, for, for the actual military situation. Has America always underestimated the amount of troops that success in Iraq was going to take? Uh, certainly that's been a major problem. That There was uh, a great deal of talk by the American military at the outset of the campaign that this campaign would be different. Uh, and there's a lot of discussion and a lot of headline-grabbing um, news about shock and awe. Now, what that really meant was that they were going to put the emphasis on firepower and on surveillance, things like the digitisation of the battlefield, for example, so they can see everything that's going on. And therefore, they felt that they would get away with fewer troops being deployed. Now, that's fine in a classic sort of war-fighting uh, situation. But in a counterinsurgency, uh, it's absolutely critical that um, key points are protected, uh, installations, administrative centres, lines of communication, and also, I think, that there's a, uh, a physical presence on the ground. In other words, you're sort of demonstrating to the local people that, uh, you know, this is the military force in, in power, in a sense. Um, insurgents, you know, there's no chance for you to uh, carry a successful campaign because we have this place buckled down. Now, um, they found very quickly in early 2004 that they simply didn't have enough men to uh, saturate, if you like, the, the area. And also, of course, they were very keen that the Iraqis would take over at some point. And the critical mistake they made, and I think we know all this now, is that they dismantled the Iraqi army uh, lock, stock and barrel. Uh, and, and this is because without historical precedent, this way of doing things, really. Uh, and by dismantling the armed forces, they had really the more pressure on themselves to actually carry out the internal security of the country. Did the Americans approach Iraq in entirely the wrong way? Uh, really, uh, you could say yes. I mean, in the uh, initial campaign uh, of 2003, uh, it's very difficult to find fault with the overall strategy or indeed with the execution of the campaign. There were a couple of mistakes, it's true. Um, there was a very um, unexpected uh, uh, sandstorm which held up the advance towards Baghdad actually for a day. Um, but on the whole, it was a very, very successful campaign. And in, in world historical terms, it's pretty remarkable, actually, that if you consider that an entire country was overrun within really a matter of a couple of weeks. Uh, I mean, even the most successful campaigns of the Second World War, you know, did not, uh, you know, reach that rapidity. Now, that went fine. But I think the, the big problem emerged with this counterinsurgency uh, episode, this phase, I don't think that they expected either the intensity or the scale of the, of the insurgency that developed, 
And as a result, I think they were on the back foot when it came to their strategy or their countermeasures. Mm-hmm. That's been the sort of key problem. Now, how one approaches then a counterinsurgency is also critical, and I think the Americans have found, uh, again, that they weren't really equipped and the training of their men wasn't really appropriate. They, they trained for a war-fighting uh, campaign. They did that. Uh, they did it very well. Uh, they always do that bit quite well, it has to be said, because of the material, the manpower and the equipment to do it with. But the counterinsurgency, that requires subtlety. And nowadays, and, and British commanders at the Defence Academy here in the United Kingdom will sort of say as well, that nowadays um, you don't have a situation that you had perhaps in, in um, Malaya or in Northern Ireland either. You, you can be fighting uh, a war-fighting campaign in one block of a city uh, in one hour. Uh, an hour later, you might be involved in sort of some hearts and minds, reconstruction, you might be uh, mending a bridge. You might then patrol a bit further down the street and find yourself in a different sort of hearts and minds where you're trying to control a riot. And all these require quite different and subtle responses, and very rapid responses, actually. Now, the American army simply don't have that kind of experience, really. They, they aren't very good at it. I think they themselves now admit that that's their weakness. And I suppose in the future what we might see is the American army... Um, emphasising more specialist units, perhaps, you know, more specialist training in counterinsurgency. Mm. They still, even now, um, seem to place the emphasis on the application of force as the priority, rather than, I think, the way the British Army have done it, which is to say, actually, it's about minimum force. It's about putting the civil, civil authorities, the police and so on, the civil administration, in the front line, getting them up front, and having the army play sort of almost a background shadowing role, if they can possibly get away with it. So are there examples of um, successful counterinsurgency operations that the Americans could learn from? Oh, there are plenty, uh, absolutely. And, um, I mean, one that sort of immediately springs to mind is recent British operations this century in Sierra Leone. Um, This was a very, very rapid insertion. Um, It it was prepared uh, a long time in advance, however. You know, a lot of um, intelligence work was done. Um, The ground was pretty much well known. They specifically targeted one area, one group, uh, they rescued a group of British hostages, and quite rightly, they then withdrew the warfighting teams and inserted um, what you might call training teams that to, uh, if you like, bolster the local government and say, look, we, we know you need the money, we know you need the, the security, let's give you the tools to do the job. Um, so that's one example. The, the people often cite Malaya, of course, as an example in the 1950s and 60s as a, a way that you know, counterinsurgency should be conducted. Um, there were, of course, mistakes made in Malaya at the very, very beginning, and, and I think you know most historians would now agree that actually it wasn't a, 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 the great whitewash success that it would be been told it was. And also, it's interesting to note that the Americans themselves did try to learn from the Malayan example in their own operations in Vietnam. I mean, if you look at the way that in, in Vietnam the Americans um, had their uh, you know, their, their resettlement schemes, if you like, their sort of fortified villages ideas and so on, those were drawn directly from the British experience in Malaya. When it came to recruiting um, some of the men from the highlands the, the, in the central part of Vietnam um, and forming them into a sort of a local militia, uh, again, that was drawn uh, from the Malayan example in many ways, from the way that Malayan scouts, the, the forerunners of the Malaysian uh, sort of version of the SAS, uh, that, that was also copied. So the Americans have in the past, picked up ideas. I think the problem is that they, the ethos of the United States Army is very much about war fighting. I mean, that has always been their priority. I mean, during the Cold War, that's understandable. But I think um, perhaps uh, the example in Afghanistan misled them in 2001. There they had a campaign that, again, lasted just a few weeks. 
very heavily dependent on air power, um, a very rapid success, proxy forces on the ground, if you like, doing the job. Um, very similar uh, experience, too, I think, with their operations in Kosovo. Again, great emphasis on air power. And I think if you look at the very beginning of the campaign in Iraq, uh, there was this attempt to have that happen too. I think if, in an ideal world, if the Pentagon had had, it, had its way, they would have had um, sort of proxy forces like the Afghan Northern Alliance on the ground doing the, the business. We'd have seen the Shias in the south and perhaps the Kurds in the north leading the operations. And in the north, um, in 2003, you know, uh, operations were essentially Kurdish with, you know, American special forces and a lot of air power backing them up. And that was a very successful part of the campaign. It was always going to be different in the central part of Af- in Iraq, because around Baghdad and in the so-called Sunni Triangle, as it's become known, uh, which is, by the way, is very misleading because they're not just Sunnis in the, in the Sunni Triangle, but in the area around the heartlands of the old Ba'ath Party and Saddam Hussein's uh, sort of heartlands in Tikrit, uh, there it was going to be very different. They were bound to meet resistance, and it's the Americans themselves have taken on the toughest part of the country. Um, so if we're going to be critical of the campaign, let's just remember the context, I think. I suppose the approach, though, in Sierra Leone is dependent on having adequate localised military and police forces in place, mm. or at least the ability to train them to a level at which you're happy to kind of hand over control to them. The issue, I suppose, in Iraq is that, <clears throat> as you've indicated, after the... Uh, the, the first part phase of the war ended, those forces were disbanded. Mm. But that those um, elements that have then come in and been trained up and, and introduced as the police and army have mm. then supposedly been infiltrated mm. by mm. Uh, interest groups um, and have taken on a political agenda. The, the accusations going around about um, death squads and uh, Sunni-Shia civil war mm. fed by those very units that um, if you were to take the Sierra Leone model mm. we would be putting in front of yes. our own troops You're absolutely it's right. just not you know that, does that model work in Iraq it, it doesn't and actually the, the problem of, of even constructing a model is of course that it's not applicable in a different country this is always a problem and actually the, the, uh, the context of Iraq is critical because um, we talk of Iraq you know very glibly as if it's one country but of course it isn't um, it's an artificial creation in many ways. It's been buckled together largely by military force through its history, although there have been episodes of peace where it was successful. Um, it, it is a problem. You're absolutely right. I mean, uh, it, one of the things that surprises me is how long it's taken for the security forces of Iraq to be reconstructed. I mean, here we are, you know, 2007, um, and it has taken uh, many, many years. This is uh, uh, something of a surprise. It's also interesting, when you look at the, the moment, why we're having a surge of American forces now... It does feel a, a, like a policy in reverse. I mean, the original idea was that you train up the Iraqi forces, and we, you know they should be national forces, and then you you pull out your own troops. But we're seeing the opposite. That, of course, begs various questions. The, the most important question it begs is, well, why? I mean, why now? Uh, you know, what what particularly is happening at the moment? Well, given that um, uh, Maliki talked, the, uh, you know, leaked, I suppose, about a year ago now, saying that 2008 would be the expected time of withdrawal for the bulk of American and, and coalition forces. Um, and if you look at the, the, the prehistory of this, we, we've seen a number of times that the Americans have uh, announced there will be some sort of decision, like an election, and always they've come in a little bit of a head so as to wrong-foot the insurgents. It may well be that this surge is part of what we, military terms, we call a break clean. You, you fill in uh, an area with lots of troops or a lot of firepower for a very short period of time to 
compel your enemy to break away, to sort of back off, uh, to dampen down, if you like, uh, their um, insurgency, so that that you can pull out. And it wouldn't surprise me if what we would see was a surge in the short term, followed by uh, quite a rapid drawdown of troops, a withdrawal of, of American forces. So this may be the prelude to the end, actually. Um, and in many ways, that would fit the, with the political and diplomatic context. But you know, going back to this issue about the context of Iraq and its division, I mean, in Afghanistan, they've had this problem about creating um, an Afghan national army, an Afghan national police, because of the ethnic differences and the long traditions of provincialism and regionalism in that country. Iraq is very much the same as that. It isn't uh, an homogenous country. Um, it's in many ways like the former Yugoslavia. You know, it has all these different uh, nationalities and elements, all of whom have quite a legitimate political stake in the future. They're anxious about the future. They they know that uh, the way that business has been done in the Iraqi past has been by force in politics. Um, there haven't been long episodes of peaceful politics really in Iraq, and and now they're seeing after the insurgency which has lasted from two thousand three uh, to the, to present that if you want to do business in the future in Iraq, you bloody well make sure that you've got you know, major forces behind you and that if there are going to be security forces in the future, well, infiltrate them because that's the way you're going to get power. So this is a major problem. Now, what, what would the British have done in the, perhaps in the colonial period? Well, of course, they would have disbanded units. They would have um, uh, taken the bull by the horns in a sense and said, well, we will disband these particular uh, battalions or these uh, police forces. They would reconstitute them. Uh, they may well flood in, it's true, more troops of their own in the short term. But always in, in the British Empire days, uh, the application of force was regarded as last resort, actually as a failure. If you were bringing troops in, high commissioners or governors were, were pretty much their career was on the line because it meant that they'd lost control. The way that you really control a, a country successfully is through, yes, through the local elites and, and yes, through local people, but by bringing in demonstrable improvements, um, a political dispensation which allows people to have some stake in what's going on. Um, that was the great success of the secret, if you like, of the success of the British Empire, it was able to convince so many to become what they call now sub-imperialists, you know, to collaborators, if you want, mm. to join in with. Uh, that's, and what's absent in Iraq, in many ways, is the fact that there are so few uh, collaborators, really. So few. I mean, Maliki is, it feels like a, an isolated figure in many ways in Iraq. But it's part of the problem in Iraq for the Americans that the Americans are actually trying to fight somebody else. Hmm. The Americans are trying to fight um, an internationally driven al-Qaeda network hmm. in hmm. Iraq in the midst of a, hmm. an expanding civil war between the Sunnis and Shias. Hmm. Um, and actually, we've got three or four different conflicts going on at the same time, which, hmm. if you take as a totality, suddenly becomes horrendous mess. Mm. Well, you put it very well. I mean, this is exactly what's happening. You've got uh, various different layers of conflict. Uh, civil conflicts at very, very low level, actually, even in, in, within um, so individual cities. You've got people vying for power, different sort of either sectarian groups or political classes and so on, trying to get their stake. Um, you're absolutely right to say that there's also a, a, an ethnic civil war on a larger scale between the three or four elements of, of Iraq. I mean, you take northern Iraq, for example, there are enclaves there of pro-Shia uh, militia groups and, and who are now some of whom are now sort of uh, rather extraordinarily uh, talking about you know linking up with al-Qaeda even though al-Qaeda is a sort of a, a, a extreme uber Sunni group you know so that's very extraordinary and you're quite right to say these international brigade kind of figures who've come in from outside uh, they're playing their part 
the bulk of, uh, of the insurgency, though, um, if you ask, you know, who are the insurgents? A question doesn't seem to get asked very often. The bulk of them are actually Iraqi. Uh, and it's interesting that they have borrowed people from elsewhere. A number, extraordinarily, a number of Palestinians have come in. And some of the suicide bombings that have taken place have actually been carried out by Palestinians. Um, and there seems to be some sort of borrowing between groups. Um, it's, it's also true to say that in the uh, Israeli-Palestine conflict, some of the suicide bombers there may not be Palestinians. So there's, there's some sort of you know, circulation going on here, which is very, very interesting. Um, there's also, it has to be said, although we regard them uh, as al-Qaeda, uh, they regard themselves as the you know, International Islamic Front, um, and uh, they, that group itself is not uh, homogenous. That is also a divided group. There are all sorts of factions vying with each other. And the other final layer that we'd have to add to this is what appears sometimes to be a political insurgency in terms of kidnapping, and there was a wave of that, you know, two years ago, uh, is actually nothing at all. It's simply criminalism. Uh, it's where um, groups of um, uh, men in their 20s and 30s who are uh, unemployed, strapped for cash, have been uh, tempted to uh, kidnap people with some sort of political name to their group and then ransom them because that's the way they make money. Uh, and that's true. If you if you go to Tajikistan, that's true there. If you're in Afghanistan, it's true there. Um, it's been true in other insurgencies around the world as well. Um, and other terror groups have done the same thing. It's, it's a classic one, if you like. So it's the layering of conflicts which makes this so complicated and so very difficult for the Americans and the coalition partners to sort out. So assuming that the American strategy then is to for a rapid withdrawal, mm. um, are the Iraqis actually up to solving this problem on their own? Well, that's the the critical point. I mean, it, it may well be that um, uh, an American withdrawal will be accompanied by a statement uh, from Washington saying, mission accomplished. You know, we have set up an Iraqi government, which they have, ultimately. They will say, the bulk of the Iraqi security forces are now in place. Well, yes, OK, they're not uh, perhaps up to the job, but that's what they'll say. Uh, and I suspect that we'll see... Um, not necessarily any triumphalism about this. I think you know too much damage has been done to American political, uh, you know, credibility on this one. But there will be uh, a feeling, I think, at least for the American domestic audience, that they'll be told, you know, we we did the job. Now, in in actual fact, I think the way, and it's very difficult, of course, to say where, where things are going to go with this. But um, what's strapping down a civil war at the moment? Uh, quite clearly, are the coalition forces. Um, because and, and I guess the, the, the fact they're being backed up by some uh, Iraqi troops on the ground. But once the Americans and the coalition partners go, it's very hard to see how the uh, Iraqi army and the Iraqi police, as they're currently constituted, will survive. I suspect they may well fragment. That uh, We'll see, for example, the police forces and security forces around Basra breaking away, refusing to listen to the central government in Baghdad, um, maybe well fighting uh, you know, in the sort of intervening... Uh, regions anyway. Um, I think it's all very well for the American government to say, well, there are certain benchmarks we're laying down, we're, we're, there are criteria, demands, if you like, we're making on them. They must do this, they must do the other before we're satisfied and so on. But I think that these will gradually be forgotten uh, as Americans look for you know, a, a route to get out. And that the, I think the ultimate fate of Iraq is, is likely to be a civil war. I, th I think the, all the signs are there, and we've, we've seen them for some time, um, there may well, however, be a miracle. We we may see uh, that you know perhaps the American withdrawal, uh, as you know, Sir Richard Dannett said a, a little while ago from you know from the British Army, that we may well make the situation work by staying there uh, worse by staying there too long. If we come out, perhaps that may that may just help. 
but somehow I doubt it. And most commentators uh, feel the same way, that we, we're not going to see a solution that The way. arguments have been made along those lines, that <clears throat> the situation has been exasperated by the fact that um, because the coalition forces have been there for so long, that the, the Iraqi government has become so dependent on them mm. um, that they haven't invested in uh, the, the developing the adequate local forces mm. required to kind of to support them. Should you know? Is there an argument that says that the Americans and British should have got out earlier? Well, of course, the argument that they used was that security came first. You, you couldn't start the kind of full reconstruction, rehabilitation, if you like, of Iraq until the security situation was secure. Well, I'm afraid that's just you know not, not the case. Um, you you have to have these things going on in parallel. That was the great success in Malaya. Um, that was a great success of other British countries, such as operations too, that you, you, yes, you do focus on security, but you get everything else going as well. Now, and it's not always popular. I mean, I, know, I do know uh, British army officers who feel that, you know, reconstruction is not what armies are for. They, they want to get on with the war fighting bits. But anyone who studied, you know, Northern Ireland and things like that will know that when the British army only focused on security, they got it wrong. And that when they started to focus a bit more... Um, through the 1980s on, and through the 1990s on this business of hearts and minds and really you know, making a huge effort to get the police and so on at the front and getting them on their own two feet to do it, um, that was what broke the, the logjam, if you like. That does need to happen in Iraq, but it's just very hard to see that that will actually take place. You indicated that 20,000 troops going in really means about 5,000 combat troops. Is that actually enough for America to kind of execute the kind of strategies that you've outlined? Um, that's a, a very interesting question, because they've got um, you know something in the region of 132,000 troops on the ground at the moment. So if we bring troops... To, let's say troop states come up to 150,000. Mm. Um, I mean, that's still... I mean, it, you know, it, if you compare it with something like the Second World War, that's a very small number, in fact, uh, you know, equivalent to, say, three or four divisions, I suppose, um, that, to do a job. Um, so is it adequate? Well, I mean, in a sense, you have to go back to what's the strategy? I mean, what's your aim? Uh, what's the tasking by the politicians? If the aim is to, um, if you like, contain, dampen down the insurgency, uh, OK, some troops will help. That, that's absolutely clear. But if the strategy is, uh, as has been hinted, to go into Sada City, for example, in Baghdad, and to simply disarm the militia, um, and as a sort of prelude to saying, well, this is, we're going to get all the, rid of all the militias now, uh, we're simply going to disarm these people. Um, in that, sort of, that way, well, that's going to make it worse. Uh, so, uh, no, and then an 8,000, 20,000 surge is not going to be enough because what you're going to do is you're going to, you're going to increase uh, the, the anger, if you like, with the coalition forces. If they approach it uh, differently, I mean, in Iraq, at the, in, sorry, in Afghanistan at the moment, what they're doing is they're saying they have a, an agenda, and the agenda says that the, all the militia warlord forces will be brought into the Afghan National Army or disbanded uh, in, within uh, the next, well, 12 months, we're, we're talking about, so 2000 and 2008. Now, that's an interesting agenda. One like that doesn't exist in Iraq, um, but it's taken a long time to, for that to happen in Afghanistan. I suspect they'll move even more cautiously than that. But perhaps what they should be doing is just um, using a little bit more subtle diplomacy to encourage Muqtada al-Sada and others to say, come on, you know, once the coalition forces have gone, do you really think that you're going to control the whole of Iraq? No. Uh, if it's just about one region, is that one region going to be economically viable in the future? Think 10 years ahead. You know, now is the time to start thinking about uh, your part within Iraq rather than, 
you were fighting your corner for your particular regional interests. I think that's the approach that needs to be taken, a much more uh, you know, political approach, if you like, before they start to wade in trying to disarm groups. That, that simply, I say, is going to make the situation work and, will, and therefore the force structure they've got will not be adequate to do the task. But I suppose if that's the scenario they're planning for, i.e. the breakup of Iraq now, then that sends entirely the wrong messages to their, the, the neighbours in the Middle East, the Saudis, the Iranians, mm. about America's strategy in the region. Well, this is, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is part of the problem that, you know, um, George W. Bush has said that they want to see the job through to its conclusion. Uh, Tony Blair was saying the th- same thing about, about a week ago when talking about defence strategy, that they, they do want to see uh, Iraq remain as one constituent body because of this wider agenda about the democratisation of the Middle East. Uh, the inc- therefore, they feel that people, once they have a voice, that will increase stability and this will... Uh, if you allow oil prices to sort of sink a little bit and that therefore the world economy will improve and this will kind of rebound back in terms of the Middle East because more people will have a stake in the wealth that's being generated by the Middle East. So there's a sort of logic in a sense to, to what they're saying. But you're right to say that if the um, if Iraq does break up uh, and that the Western powers in a sense accept the breakup of Iraq, it does put back that whole agenda. Um, and I wonder what kind of message it will send. Now, they may well get away with it by saying, well, if that was the democratic will of the Iraqi people to form their own separate, maybe autonomous provinces or their own countries uh, in that sense, I don't think there'll be nation states, actually, in the way we understand it. Um, that perhaps that, what they'll say is, if this is what they want, this is what they're going to get. I mean, it was very interesting to see George W. Bush having to sort of a, a admit when Hamas you know, got such a large... Uh, election result uh, in um, in the Palestinian Authority, who had to sort of shrug his shoulders and say, "Well, this is democracy," uh, and if the you know Iraqi people uh, want to execute in, in quite you know gruesome ways their former enemies, I, I guess one of the things that you have to accept is well that if you give these people back their sovereignty, uh, that's what you're going to get. We, you know, people in the West might not like it. Um, but actually, that's the way perhaps it's going to be done. And I, I wonder if that's the future, really, that the West has to stop meddling, interfering and hectoring its, uh, you know, its uh, sort of protégés, really, and start to accept that actually the destiny of Iraq lies with the Iraqi people. Rob, thank you very much. It's a pleasure.